we get we're not getting anything we can switch to the other mic okay that's fine okay we'll have the kids stay here with us this morning uh, we're getting we're getting uh, tired of passing the the germs around and, and so we thought maybe we could stop a few of them by having uh, the kids stay here rather than be in junior church for the, for this morning, but uh, so we're going to turn to Genesis chapter two, and we're going to look at verses four through seventeen. Genesis chapter two. Uh, I, I won't stay with that. <laughs> we'll, we'll do the best we can. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord had not sent rain upon the earth. There was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing in the sight and good for food the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and in the tree of and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil now a river flowed out of eden to water the garden and from there it divided and became four rivers the name of the one is pishon it flows around the whole land of havilah where there is gold the gold of that land is good and bdellium and the onyx stones are there the name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man, put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Today we get a glimpse of what I have described as a divine drama that's taking place. It began in the beginning of time. We got it now. <laughs> uh, that ought to wake you up. <laughs> and it continues to be played out today in each and every one of our lives. It's a drama that will cultivate in glory when we get there. Uh, we usually think of when we use that word drama, we usually think of a play, somebody putting on a, a play, an act, an artistic work there. Webster, however, defines drama as a series of events that involves two conflicting forces, a series of events that includes two convicting forces. So that takes it out of the realm of the theater, puts it in the realm of where we live. I, I've only been involved in my lifetime in, in one play. Uh, uh, probably will only be involved in one play. <laughs> that was not the most pleasant experience. That was the first time in my life I had to have makeup put on and, and, and dress the part and so forth. And then, and then to, to top it all off, you talk about a gross misjudgment of character and so forth. They they cast me as the villain of the play. <laughs> uh, it, it was for a good cause. It, it was for the Crisis Pregnancy Center in Lewiston, and, and we had a couple performances. But it was an interesting experience, but that's not Pastor Dan. <laughs> you, you may enjoy acting, but, but I, I don't enjoy that. But the fact is, we are all participants in the drama 
that begins to unfold in Genesis 2. We all face those conflicting forces. We all are, are involved in one way or another in the drama. The question is not, are we in the drama, but which side are we on? Which part are we playing? Who, who are, are we seeking to glorify in that drama? We see, first of all here, the stage being set for us in verses 4 through 6. This is the second account of creation. Differs a little bit from chapter 1. And there are those that say, well, you know what? It's, it's not, the Bible's not accurate because there's two different creation accounts here. Actually, they don't contradict each other. They support each other. In chapter 2, he's giving us some added details that we didn't have in chapter 1. And the reason for that is he has a different purpose in mind as he comes to chapter 2. Years ago, I used to pastor in South Dakota, and I had two churches. One service started at 9.30 in the morning, and uh, it was out in the country about 10 miles out of town. If I finished in time, I'd have about 10 minutes to visit with people, and then we jumped in the car and made it just in time for the 11 o'clock service at, at, at the second church. There were times when we didn't quite make it at 11, but that's okay. But uh, my family often went with me to both services. Ginger usually went. Sometimes the kids would go. And they, they often remarked of how my message changed in a, a half hour because I, I used the same outline. I used the same scripture passage, and yet it seemed like a different message. And the reason for that was I had different uh, areas I wanted to stress with each group. Uh, and uh, sometimes it was deliberate. Sometimes it was just the way the Spirit of the Lord led in the moment. And, and they would come out di- differently there. But uh, that's what is happening here in Genesis 1 and 2. He's adding some details here. And, and notice the change that, that comes here. In verse 4, he starts out with, this is the account of what the heavens and the earth. Now go back to chapter 1 for a minute, verse 1. In the beginning, God did what? He created the heavens and the earth. And so he's looking in chapter 1 at the creation from God's standpoint. This is how God sees it. This is his, his description of it and so forth. But then notice the change in verse 4. You come to the end of verse 4, and what does it say? It says, um, the Lord God made what? Earth and heaven. Why the change in that one verse? I think it's because suddenly he's switching his viewpoint here, just as I, I would do with those two churches. Uh, I, I had a different purpose in mind for, for each of those messages. So the Spirit of God did the same thing here. He's now looking at it not from God's standpoint, but he's viewing it from man's standpoint. You'll notice also there's a change here in how the Lord is addressed. In chapter 1, it's in the beginning, God, Elohim, the, the, the creator, the almighty one, came and created the earth. When you come to chapter 2, he's looking at not just Elohim, but he's looking at the Lord God. He adds the name Yahweh to that. He's looking at not just the one who created the universe, but the one who is the covenant-keeping God with mankind as well. And so his focus has shifted from just looking at the creator to looking at the one who not only created the stars and the world in which we live, 
but the one who desires to have an intimate fellowship with each one of us. He is Yahweh. He is the the covenant-keeping God today. And so that begins the, the divine drama between the forces of God and, as we'll see in chapter 3, the enemy steps in, and we have the forces of evil being revealed there. It's a drama that is to be played out, not in the heavens, but on the earth. It's a drama that's being played out every day in your life and mine as we wrestle with the forces of darkness that, that are around us. Now, we can only speculate on why God decided to have this drama. I think we get a clue to that in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3, in verse 10, he says, In order that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the ruler's authorities in the heavenly places. Uh, Verse 9 says that he created all things so that somehow through us he can reveal something of the manifold wisdom of God. Somehow he is using you and I, whether you like it or not, as object lessons. We're object lessons to the angels. They are seeing something about the wisdom of God that they didn't understand and maybe still don't fully understand. We are the instrument that God is using to play out that drama, to reveal to the powers that be both in heaven and in earth the the glory, the wisdom, the, the majesty of God. And so the drama begins. The stage is set. We're introduced to the main character in verse 7. The main character happens to be man himself or mankind there as we we looked at in chapter 1, verse 27. He's not looking just simply at Adam there. He's looking at Adam and Eve both. Man in in Genesis could be translated mankind. Remember he said he created male and female and called them man. So it includes all of us in that drama today. We'll see more of that when we come down to verse 18 there. But verse 7 is very succinct. Just gives us a glimpse of not only God and what his creation, but the fact that we are a triune being. God is a triune being. We're created in the image of God, and he created us as a triune being. In First Thessalonians... Uh, chapter f- 5, in verse 23, he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you wholly. May your spirit, soul, and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there Paul identifies the three parts that we are as a triune being, the, the spirit, the soul, and the body. Now in Genesis chapter 2, when, when you come down to verse 7, he doesn't use the same order there. He starts with the body because that is the house or as Corinthians suggests, Second Corinthians 5, that's the tent in which we dwell. It's not our permanent dwelling place, but today it houses the spirit and the soul. We have a physical body and he speaks of the fact that that was made from the dust. Now, we may not like to think that we're just mere dust, but uh, we, we were made from the dust. We, uh, a- Adam was shaped by God out of the dust of the earth. Uh, and it's still true today that God shapes each one of us. In uh, the Psalms, Psalms 139, he speaks of the fact, 
In verse 13, thou didst form my inward parts. Thou didst weave me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are thy works, and my soul knows it very well. You and I, he's saying there, are a unique creation. Each of us are a unique creation of God. We were formed, we were shaped by God himself. It's the same picture of the potter and the clay. The potter has the right to take the clay, make whatever he wants with it. Many of you understand that. I was watching the, um, our artists that work here on uh, Thursday, uh, four ladies painting away. And as I walked around the table, each one was painting a different picture. Why didn't they do the same thing? That was their prerogative. That was their choice. And why has God made us as he has? Well, you'll have to take that up with him. He's the creator. He's the potter, not you. And, and yet he does reveal that he has made us as unique individuals, and we have a special purpose in life. He made us the way we are because that's what he wants us to be, and that's how we he wants us to best glorify him. The body is makes us aware of the, the world around us. We're reminded that we came from dust. And in chapter 3, he says, someday we're going to return to the dust. Now, we don't like to think about that, but that, that is a, a fact. But uh, as you think about that, aren't, aren't you thankful that God created your body in such a way that you can live in this world? The, the, the whole of creation revolves around the fact that God created it for you and I to dwell in it. We, we had a, a, a good illustration of that just yesterday. I won't mention any names here, but uh, some people found out that if there's too much carbon monoxide in the air, your body's not used to that. It's not prepared for that, and uh, you wind up in the hospital. It, it's remarkable when, when you think of the hundreds and thousands of little details that can go wrong, how God put it all together so Adam and Eve could dwell in Eden. So you and I could live today. You, uh, it, it's remarkable when you think of just a, a short distance away from the sun, and we wouldn't be here. Life wouldn't exist. Get a little bit too close to the sun and it would be burned up. Uh, you, you look at the atmosphere in, in which we, we don't even give it a second thought usually, but how much oxygen is in it, how much carbon monoxide can be in it, uh, and so forth. God balanced it all perfectly for you and for I. And I think it's foolish for us to, to say it all just happened by chance. No, God created it. God made it, and God placed us in that. He put our body, he put us in a body that is fit for this earth. That's why it was made from dust. Now, he says that the day is coming when going to, our body's going to return to dust. It's like the, the little boy that um, went to his mom and said, well, didn't you say that Adam was made from dust? And she said, well, yes. And she said, well, either somebody's coming or going under my bed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it's a fact of life. But aren't you thankful today that in First Corinthians he speaks of the fact that when we return to that dust, it's as if a, a seed is planted in the ground. 
And we expect that seed when we, we spring is coming, by the way. Uh, I hope you're not too disappointed in that, but it, it, it is coming. When we put those seeds in the ground, we don't expect another seed to come out of the ground. We expect a plant to come out. It's changed. It's transformed. And, and that's what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians. God, as we are planted in the ground, in a sense, he's going to resurrect us with a body, not a body fit for this world, not made of dust, but a, a transformed body that's going to be fit for eternity, of dwelling with him in, in glory. And so we will have a body throughout all of eternity, but it will be different than what we know of today. As we think about that, he created the body, he shaped it, he formed it. Let's not fall into the thinking of the the Gnostics in Paul's day that said, you know what, the body's evil, the soul is good. And so it doesn't matter what you do in the body and so forth. God doesn't say that in his word. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he he reminds us in, in verse 19 and 20, he says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. That's the place where God is being glorified today. It's how we act, how we react within in our human body. It's the instrument that reveals God's glory to the world. And so don't look in the mirror and criticize God. Look in the mirror and thank God that he uniquely created you to somehow reveal to your family, to your friends, maybe to your neighborhood, something of a glimpse of the glory of God. He has uniquely shaped you, just as he did Adam and Eve, so that you can reveal his glory to this world. Then he speaks there not only of the body, but he speaks of the spirit. Notice it says, and he did what? He breathed into his nostrils, the breath of life there. The word that he uses here, breathe, in the Old Testament is translated several ways. It can be breath, it can be wind, or it could be translated spirit as well. The same idea comes out of John chapter 1, where it says, All things came into being by him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. And he, he breathed that life into Adam and Eve. He gave them that, that spiritual life. They became a, a spiritual being in that moment. And remember the command, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. When Adam and Eve chose to sin, they died in their spirit. Oh, they lived for many years after that physically, but they were dying from that moment on because they were separated from God. They, they had, their, their spirit was dead. We read in the New Testament in uh, Ephesians chapter chapter 2, got too many notes here. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air. What he's saying there is we were on the wrong side of the drama. We were taking the, the side of the enemy of God. We had to be brought into a new relationship, we had to be born again if we were going to have spiritual life. In, in Romans chapter 5, it speaks to the fact in, in verse 12 and following there that um, in Adam, we all die. Why? Because we all receive that sin nature there. But in Christ, 
we're made alive again. And First uh, Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14, he speaks of the fact that uh, we, first man was a, a living body in a sense. The second man is a living spirit there. We, we are born again. That's what Jesus emphasized in John chapter 3 when he was with Nicodemus. He said, unless a man be what? Born again, he can't enter the kingdom of heaven. That spirit has to be reborn, has to be come into a right relationship with God. And then we see the soul there in the last phrase, man became a living being or a living soul there is another way of of translating that particular phrase. The, The spirit makes us conscious of God and our relationship with God, the body, the world around us, the soul makes us conscious of one another. It's, it's the realm of the senses, the mind, and so forth there. We became, Adam became a living being that's been corrupted by sin. We still wrestle with the old nature. We, we, we've been corrupted by sin, but yet we still have that, that image of God within us today. In the... Uh, as you think of the body, soul, and spirit there, I think of the work of redemption. In Colossians chapter 3, it speaks of the fact, uh, beginning chapter 3, verse 9, it says, or, or verse 10, it says, and, and have put off on the new self, which is being renewed to a true knowledge of the, according to the image of the one who created him. He is in the business of recreating us into the image of Jesus Christ. He's in the business of taking us, in a sense, back to what Adam and Eve was before they fell. We're being recreated into the image of God. Now, as we think of redemption, uh, we think of our, first of all, the Spirit. In Colossians chapter 2 there again, in verse 13, it says, And when you were dead in your transgresses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions. We were dead in our spirit. He forgave us. He cleansed us. He gave us new life. We have been redeemed. Our spirit has been reborn, redeemed, and it is right with God. That's the whole idea in Romans chapter 5 of justification. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have what? We have peace with God. We, we can enter into a, a fellowship, a relationship with God because we have been redeemed. But scripture also goes on to reveal the fact that we are in the process of being redeemed. Our soul is being redeemed today. Colossians chapter 3 verse 10 speaks of that, that work. It's a work of sanctification. We're a work in progress. Sometimes we're on the wrong side of the drama, aren't we? Sometimes we give in to the old nature. Sometimes we, we give in to the enemy, and, and God has to come in and, and do a work in our heart and life. He is making us into the image of Jesus Christ. Our soul is in the process of being redeemed. Someday, he said, we are going to be finally redeemed. It's going to be over, that process. We're going to be like him. In Romans chapter 8, verse 23, he speaks of the fact that uh, our body is groaning today, uh, the, the creation is groaning, and sometimes we groan with it, don't we? You ever 
grown about having to get up in the morning <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, the work that you have to do and so forth. He, he says, uh, verse 22, we know the whole creation groans and suffers in the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also, having the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for what? For the adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Aren't you glad that the body that you have today is not the same as what you're going to have throughout all of eternity? The aches, the pains, the limitations, they're going to be gone. We're going to have something far better to dwell in. But we haven't arrived there yet. And so we still struggle. We, we, we still have a part to play in that divine drama today. Praise the Lord. First John chapter 3 says, when we see him, we're going to be like him. That process will be complete. We will be like him fully someday. We're not there yet, but we're moving that direction. Body, soul, and spirit will be fully redeemed. So that takes us to the first scene of the play. It begins in a garden. The garden is called Eden. The word Eden has two translations. It can be translated delight or pleasure. I'll let you choose which one you like the best there. It can be delight. It can be pleasure. We can, I think, only imagine, or I don't think we can even imagine what Eden was like. The, the glories that God had prepared for Adam and Eve. And that it was all of theirs to, to enjoy. Uh, I, I remember, well, I think of 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. It says, I hath not seen nor ear heard the things that God hath prepared for those who love him. I, I, I'm sure we each have an idea of what glory is going to look like. Yeah, you ever try to work that out in your mind? You're going to be totally surprised when you get there. It's going to be far greater than anything that you can imagine or dream of today. Let your imagination run wild in that area. You're not going to come close to the glories that God has prepared for those who love him there. I, I, I saw a glimpse of this years ago. We were living in Quinell, British Columbia, and... Uh, Ginger's parents had moved to Alaska. They were living out at Trapper's Lake. Those of you that are familiar with Alaska know where it's outside of Talkeetna, Wasilla in that area. Uh, the only way into their property was either an all-terrain vehicle in the summertime or a snow machine in the wintertime or a float plane or a ski plane in the winter. Uh, you, you did, there was no roads. There, there was no way to, to, to drive into it. it. It was quite a chore to go to town. It would, if you went by all-terrain vehicle, it was almost an all-day trip to get out to your car. And then you had to go to town, and then you come back and, and go in the next day. Uh, it, it, and, and so her father thought it would be great if they had their own plane, because it was kind of expensive to charter a plane to come in and out. And uh, so he, he bought a little tailor craft. The only problem was it was in Oklahoma. He's in Alaska. And so he flies down with a pilot, and they're going to fly the plane home. And, but he didn't want to leave his wife out there alone. And so he asked if she could come and visit us. And, and we had a, a good time visiting there in Quinell with her. Uh, and then it came just about time for her to go back. And she had a ticket from Quinell to Victoria. You change planes in Victoria. You go to Seattle. You change planes. You go to, up to Anchorage, and somebody hopefully meets you there. Uh, she did not enjoy flying. She did not she she was dreading all of those transfers that she was going to have to make uh, because nobody was going to be with her to help her find her way through the gate uh, and if you ever get lost in Seattle airport 
or, or, or get mixed up there. <laughs> yeah, uh, that, that's what she was facing. And I came up with the bright idea, why don't we drive to Victoria? That'll save you one flight because she did not enjoy flying. And, and I, I said, we'll take you to Victoria. We'll spend a day or two looking over Victoria, and then we'll see that you get on the right plane headed out for, for Seattle. We'll just change your ticket to start in Victoria instead of starting here in Quesnel. We arrived in Victoria, and one of the first places we went to visit was Butchert Gardens. Many of you have been there. You know what I'm talking about. Now, Gloria had been living in Alaska for a couple years now. Uh, she loved to garden. She had a tremendous garden when they lived over in Elk. Not only vegetables, but also flowers. She, she loved flowers. She was able to have a few marigolds out there because the ground underneath was permafrost, and uh, you didn't grow a whole lot there. But uh, she struggled to have some flowers there. But I, I still remember as we walked around the corner and you overlook the sunken gardens, the awe on her face. It was so much greater than anything she had ever imagined that she was going to see on, on that trip. She was just taken in by the, 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 the colors, the flowers, the beauty that was there. In a small way, that pictures, I think, what's going to happen when we step through the gates of glory. We're going to be overwhelmed by what we see. It's going to be glorious. He has a glorious future for us there. But notice as you look at the first scene here, as glorious as it was, notice in the center, there, in verse 9, there was a tree. The tree of life in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What is God saying in that? I think he's saying that you and I, as much as we don't like to admit it sometimes, you and I are not the center of the universe. <laughs> we, we like to think that way. We demand our own way. We demand God do it our way. We, we demand that others do it our way, and on and on it goes. But he's very politely saying in verse 9, you are not the center of the universe. God is. And God has placed those two trees there to remind us, uh, and it's good for us to keep that in mind. He is the one that is the important one here. Not, not Adam and Eve at this point, but God. God is the center of the universe. God's the one that created it. It's for his glory and his purpose there. And he put them in a beautiful spot. The first scene was well watered. There were four rivers coming, a river coming out and splitting up into four rivers. And we say, well, we don't see that today. Where in the world is that? I don't know where it was. When we, we look at what happened with the flood, it was all changed. The, the whole topography of the area was completely changed and transformed. So we can't identify where Eden was today. I know people that have their theories. I know one man in our area that puts it in Jerusalem. Uh, others put it in uh, close to Babylon and so forth. fact of the matter is we just don't know. God knew, and that's, that was the important part. And Adam and Eve knew, but uh, we don't know where it was today. It, it's been destroyed by the flood. But that leads us to the test, the beginning of the drama in verse 15 through 17. Man is placed in a beautiful garden. He is, he is blessed in verse 16 of being able to eat of every tree of the garden except for one. You're not allowed to eat, he said, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just one restriction was all that Adam and Eve had. They could enjoy anything else in the garden that they wanted, but they could not eat of that 
one particular tree. Now, sometimes we think God is harsh in his commands. God is restricting our freedom. We need to realize that when God gives a command, it's for our benefit. Um, The commandments many times are couched in a negative sense, but they also have a positive sense. Take the commandment, thou shalt not kill. That's negative. You put that not in there and you have a negative commandment. Why does he give that command? Because it's because he's protecting the sanctity of human life. Uh, And we have the right to live, not to have somebody kill us. We have the right to live there. And so he's protecting that right. And the same thing is true of all of his commands, his moral commands. They have a reason, and that reason is designed for our welfare and our good. And the same thing was true here, I believe, in this particular passage. God had a reason in mind for saying, you shall not eat of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. If you go back to Romans chapter 16, Paul, as he closes that tremendous book of his, come down to verse, uh, uh, better look at my notes. Do you, do you have it up there? 19. Okay. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in evil. We don't need to know evil. We don't need to dig into all of the perversity that is out there today. If God says it's wrong, it is wrong. We don't need to know all the ins and outs of it. God does. We can leave that in his hands. He said, you don't need to know the knowledge of evil, and neither did Adam and Eve, but that's what they learned by eating of that that tree, and that brought sin and death into their lives. I think it's important for us today to realize that God sets the limits. There are moral absolutes today. I know it's popular today to say there's no such thing as absolutes. If anybody ever says that to to them, ask them, are you absolutely sure that's true? Because if they say, yes, it's true, then they've just created an error in logic. They're, they're saying this is an absolute statement, and, and they're just saying there, there is no absolute statement. It's, it's kind of a, a, a foolish way of, of doing it. Uh, and if they want to persist in saying there's no absolutes, uh, ask them to go up on the roof and step off the edge. Does gravity, is gravity an absolute? You know, uh, there's been times when I've been up on the roof, and I wished gravity wasn't an absolute. I wished it, if, if I believed in it, it worked. But if I didn't want to believe in it, it wasn't going to work for me. Uh, I remember sliding off of the roof of that, that section there and stopping at the edge. Uh, I, I would have loved to have said, Lord, I don't believe in gravity this time, so I'm just going to stay here. Uh, it didn't work that way. Uh, there's an, God has set some absolutes for us. And I think it's important for us to realize his commands are just that. They are commands. They're not divine suggestions. They're divine commands. He gives them to us for a reason, and we need to follow them today. We have those who are teaching moral relativism and so forth. There is no absolutes. If it works for you, it's fine. If it doesn't work for me, it's fine. No, that's not the case. God says, this is the way it is. This is the way it's going to be, and we better pay attention to, to his word today. God has given us tremendous freedom today to choose which side of the drama we want to be on. Do we want to go his way? Do we want to go our way or the enemy's way? The thing that he hasn't given us 
though, is the freedom to choose the consequences. Romans chapter 3 speaks of the fact that all is sin and comes short of the glory of God. And then you come down to chapter 6, it says the wages of sin is what? It's death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But if we choose to live in sin, we face death. It, it, it destroys us. In John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Why did he give us the freedom of choice? He didn't want a robot. He wanted us to come to him because we love him, because we want to to glorify him, not because we have to or not because we were created to do to without a choice. That that choice is still needed to be made today. Joshua, as he came to the end of his life, called the nation together and he said to them in chapter 24, verse 15, he said, choose you this day whom you will serve. You have to make that choice, he said. I can't make it for you. It's an individual choice. You're involved in that cosmic battle. And often, even though we don't understand the battle, we, are, we find ourselves in the midst of it. The question is, have we chosen his side? Have we chosen to walk with him, to do that which would glorify him, or are we choosing to side with the enemy today? We can't walk away from the the drama we're a part of it that when, when they first came and said you, you got to put makeup on I felt like walking away uh, and all that junk they're putting on the face and so forth I, I didn't want any parts of that but uh, at that point in time two hours before we had to play I couldn't walk away and leave it I, I had to go through with it and we can't walk away from the drama either We are constantly facing that spiritual battle today. Which side are we on? Which side are we choosing? Have have we chosen to live for the glory of Jesus Christ? Or have we chosen to live for ourselves or for the enemy? I like the story of the pastor. It it always amazes me when you go to a pastor's conference what they talk about. Uh, how many people are in your congregation? How much is your uh, is your budget and so forth? I mean, what difference does that really make? But th- this pastor was asked this question: How many members? How many of your members are active? Now, when we think about that, we think, okay, how many of our members here are active in the work of the Lord, and how many are just sitting on the sidelines doing nothing? This pastor answered it just a little bit differently. He said. A hundred percent of my members are active. And somebody said, well, what do you mean a hundred percent? He said, well, half of them are active for the Lord. Half of them are active for the devil. (laughs) 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 He he had it right. He had it right. Which, Which either we are on the Lord's side seeking to live for him, seeking to glorify him, or we're on the other side of the drama. And so as we come to the Lord's table this morning, remember the command in 1 Corinthians is, let a man, let a woman do what? Examine themselves. Which side were you on this week? Whose side were you supporting? Were you seeking to live out the principles of God's word as you walked through this world? Or were you walking contrary to what you knew God wanted you to do? We examine ourselves for a reason. So that we can come back to the Lord, ask his forgiveness if we've chosen the wrong side, and we can move ahead 
to the glory of Jesus Christ. He picks us up, puts us back on our feet, and says, get moving again. That's the, the, the joy of coming to the Lord's table. If we come the right way, we examine our hearts before the Lord. We can go out of here in a new direction, in the drama, for the glory of Jesus Christ. So which side have you been serving this week? His or the enemies? Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come before you in prayer today, we confess that we don't fully understand the drama that you've placed us in. Why do we have to struggle with sin? Why can't it suddenly be over? We thank you that the day is coming when it will be. But in the meantime, give us the courage of conviction to say, I'm going to glorify Jesus Christ in my body, in this world, in a way that is pleasing to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. With that in mind, we're going to sing, Cleanse Me.